everybody. Welcome to the Analytics Anecdotes Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. And I'm your co-host, Tony Olson. This podcast is all about data science, analytics, and AI, where we share anecdotes from experts in this field. Analytics takes collaboration, and we hope you enjoy these collaborative interviews. And don't forget to subscribe and like us at Excellion.io. In this episode of the podcast, Tony's actually going solo and speaking with Casey Rentmeister. Casey is the Director of General Education and an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bellin College. He specializes in ethics, is the author of the book Heidegger and the Environment, and has numerous other articles on philosophy. In Tony's conversation with Casey, they discuss ethics and how it applies to data and AI. If you would like to connect with Casey, you can find his LinkedIn in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Analytics Anecdotes. I'm here with Dr. Casey Rettmeister. Um, Casey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, um, Casey, it's a Sunday afternoon here, one of those bright summer or yeah, spring Wisconsin days. Yep. Um, where we're right after uh, like you know yard work and stuff like that, so we're both having a drink. Uh, what you know, what what do you got there uh, that's on tap for you? So this is a buzzy blonde. It's a coffee ale out of Badger State. So pretty tasty. Yeah. How about you? What are you uh, myself, it's a it's a aged rum. I'm into aged rum, so I have a twelve year old uh, Zaya with uh, mixed with just a little bit of Coca Cola. There you go. So, yeah. nice. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for coming today. Um, uh, you know, I think it'd be really great for the audience. Can you go ahead and just introduce yourself? Tell a little bit about, of, uh, about, um, about you and your background. Sure. So I'm kind of one of the rare academics who found his way home. Um, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, went to St. Norbert college, uh, basically to play football, but then I, I found philosophy while I was there, which is what I ended up majoring in. Uh, then after my undergrad degree in philosophy, I moved to China for a summer and just learned a lot about Eastern philosophy, so things like Buddhism and Taoism. I uh, came back, went to my master's program at Kent State University in Ohio, um, and then moved down to Tampa, got my doctorate at the University of South Florida in 2012. Then I got a one-year visiting professor gig up in Alaska. So I moved up to Alaska all the way up from Florida, which was <laughs> insane. That's a, I'm sure that was a drastic jump. There. It was quite the, quite the car ride, we'll put yeah. it that way. Um, so I just kind of went up there. I knew it was a one-year gig, so I just brought basically books and clothes. Um, so I spent the year hiking and, and hanging out up there. Got um, a job at Finlandia University up in the UP, the Upper Peninsula. So I started a philosophy program there. So I spent four years up there. And then the job that I have now came, uh, this was about three and a half years ago, four years ago. Um, and it's, I, I'm the director of general education and an associate professor of philosophy at Bellin College in Green Bay. And Bellin College is a small health sciences school. And so I kind of run all of the non-program classes. So I'm in charge of the sciences, social sciences, humanities, but then I teach all the philosophy classes as well. Awesome, thank you. Um, that's that's quite the background. So now, so now you're in it. You got your doctorate. You're teaching philosophy um, to uh, young learners now. That's yeah. <laughs> I got to where I wanted to go. Yeah, it took exactly. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, as well as it probably takes some time. So um, tell me a little bit about you know when when we first were talking about this and saying hey this I think there's some 
there's there's some good topics that you can bring to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about your background in, now in medical ethics and teaching those, especially with your philosophy expertise, um, and and you're telling me a little bit about them, and then you know making we're making a lot of similarities between the challenges that are that are going on in the AI data science world sure. with ethics, um, you know, and uh, I thought it may be really good to start off with. What's the medical profession doing from an ethical perspective? Sure. And we can go from there. Yeah, so medical ethics really stems all the way back to ancient Greece. And back then, so this is like 2,500 years ago, you had the Hippocratic Oath, which most of people know, like do no harm is, is one of the big things in the Hippocratic Oath. And you also have things like respecting confidentiality of your patients. So this is a pretty long-standing tradition. Um, It's only recently, so the past 50 years probably, since the 1970s, that we started to really emphasize things like patient autonomy, so the right for you to choose your own decisions regarding your health. Um, The idea that you can get a second opinion comes out of this. The ideas like informed consent, to know what you're getting into before you consent to it, come out of this. But all of these sorts of things are kind of backed by this principle that you as a human being have a right to choose your life in accordance with your interests. And this is something that philosophers have talked about for eons, right? So now when you talk about medical ethics, you kind of have four principles that guide those sorts of things. And the first one is autonomy, which just in Greek, auto means self, nomos means law. So you, you have the right to make your own laws about your life, your own decisions about your life. So we respect patient autonomy. Before um, really the 1970s, it was more what's called paternalism, where the doctor just told you what to do and you didn't have much of a say. You just followed doctor's orders. But these days we're in the era of patient autonomy where you have a say. So that's the first one is autonomy. Do you know what changed there from an autonomy perspective from the 70s to, to nowadays? Yeah, there's a famous case, um, Spence versus Canterbury. So this happens in, in the early 1970s, where a person, his name is um, David Canterbury, he gets in a, um, basically he's, he's a surgeon. He, th- this guy comes in who um, essentially is having back pain and they're gonna do a back surgery, right? And so the surgery seems to go fine. They don't tell him afterwards though that he should not try to go to the bathroom by himself, right? So he gets up after the surgery, post-surgery, to go to the bathroom, he falls, right? And he ends up becoming partially paralyzed for the rest of his life. So the argument was that the doctor did not communicate those risks beforehand, and he didn't. He admitted that he didn't. Um, But this led to doctors being a little bit like, oh, we better watch our backs so we don't have litigation. Um, And this leads to things like informed consent and all these laws. Really, in the 70s, it goes it goes crazy. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. It's a good, it's a great background. So it took, but it took the courts, and then it took, mm-hmm. it took liability really it, right. to drive that change. It's good. It's a good example where, like, law codifies ethics, right? So you have these ethicists who have been talking about this for a long time. I mean, most of this autonomy talk comes back to a guy named Immanuel Kant, who was an Enlightenment thinker. So we're talking like late 1700s, early 1800s. But it took really some litigation for the law system to say, yeah, we, we need to get something in place here so that uh, you're not going to be liable for those sorts of things. And we, and we check these protocols off. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So um, 
Autonomy was the first one. So right. right. I mean, so you, there's, there's three more. <laughs> there's yep. three more. So okay. the second one is beneficence. And that, you got the word benefit right in there, right? So beneficence just means to do good. So you should aim to do good. Um, the most, so in other words, you aim to do good for your patient, not necessarily only for yourself if you're a medical practitioner. The third one is probably the most famous one, which is non-maleficence. And this means first do no harm, right? So whatever you do, some, some doctors will say, whatever you do, at least don't harm your patient. Don't leave your patient worse off than they were when they walked in, right? So that's non-maleficence. And then the last one is social justice. So you wanna have an eye towards making sure everybody has a decent shot at a good life and you're not basically biasing certain populations. So those are the four. So um, going back to the, the, you know, doing good mm-hmm. from a medical, in the medical world, is there, is, you know, where, you know, the autonomy is very, there's some legal ramifications there. Yeah. You know, uh, doing good and always be doing the best interest of the patient and everything. I'm sure that gets complex. Is, it was liabilities or legalities. Is that, did that drive that second concept too? Um, well, really, that second concept goes all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath, right? So the idea was you kind of, when you, when you shift from being a student of medicine to actually practicing medicine yourself, you take this oath and you, it's like a vow, a public vow, where you're going to practice in a certain way. And you basically would say, look, I'm not going to practice in a corrupt manner. I'm going to try to do what's good for the patient, what's best for the patient, right? Mm-hmm. So that's been there for a long time. But the idea that now I want to ask the patient what they want, that autonomy piece, that's new. Hmm. So that's something that really the litigation drove. Interesting. From the Hippocratic Oath perspective, it, you know, and you know, the, the whole beneficence. Yeah. Do they, um, is that a kind of uh, self-regulated? You know, like uh, all, the, uh, all the doctors are saying, yeah, I'm going to do this. And there's no, there's no follow-up if you don't, or is there repercussions if you don't? So doctors are pretty big on professional autonomy, right? Which means they want to be able to, to tell, they want to, they want to call the shots regarding how they practice, right? They're the experts. They don't want big government coming in and saying, you have to do things a certain way. Mm-hmm. Now at the same time, recently the government, ha- they have some mandates. Like for instance, you have now electronic health records, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't just a matter of, well, this might be more efficient as opposed to actually writing down things on a patient chart. Let's put it in a computer so it's more easily accessible, more legible, all those things, right? That wasn't a decision due to efficiency sake. That was mandated by the government. So as much as professional autonomy is a big deal in medicine and doctors really covet that sort of thing, there are, there are laws in place, obviously, that, that regulate some of this stuff. And every big health system has an ethics board, mm-hmm. right? And I serve on one of these, where if something's a little bit shady or gray, it'll go to the ethics board and then we'll kind of talk through, well, what happened here? What's the patient perspective? What's the healthcare system's perspective? And we'll talk through like what should happen given what we know. That's super interesting. So that's done by each health system then has Correct. that board. So there's some... It's, it's self-regulation a little bit. It is, um, it is. Well, and okay. usually on those, you'll have a lawyer, you'll have the, the token philosopher like me, and then you'll have... <laughs> the token philosopher. <laughs> well, that's pretty much what it is. And then you'll have, um, like, your, your, maybe your chief nursing officer, your physicians, mm-hmm. right? So you'll have some of the administration covered as well. 
Um, but certainly you want all these different perspectives so that it's not just like, let's just trust the physician. That doesn't really happen anymore. Right. Right. If there's any gray area, it goes to something bigger. Interesting. Okay. Um, I think the non-maleficence is pretty, um, pretty self-explanatory yeah. and obviously some legal ramifications on that one also. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, how about the social justice? I think that's an interesting one. Um, you know, do you, do you have any historical context on that one? So in 1989, we passed this law in the United States called MTALA, which basically says you can't turn somebody away from, from an emergency room. So regardless of whether or not you can pay for it, for instance, you have to, if somebody comes to a nonprofit emergency room in a hospital, right, you can't turn them away, right? So if they say, I'm here, you know, uh, I know I can't pay for this, but will you treat me? You have to say yes. Mm -hmm. And if you don't say yes, if you turn them away, there are massive ramifications. So the physician gets charged $50,000, they get fined, and so does the health system, $50,000. So you don't, you don't want to do this, right? right? So, but the, of course, the issue is if they can't pay, who's going to end up paying? Mm -hmm. It's the people who are actually paying, and that's why prices keep going up and up and up, right? Mm -hmm. So, so MTALA is really one of, those, one of those things where we are ensuring there's some social justice here, right? Everybody has a right to at least be treated in an emergency setting, even if we don't have the same sort of universal health care that you have in, in like European countries, for instance. Mm -hmm. We at least have something like that, but it has its own issues as well. Um, it's interesting that social justice, which can be such a broad topic, is really down to, you know, it comes down to you got to treat somebody at ER. It's one, you know, or in the ER, it's one, one piece of legislature, if you will. Yeah, right. Um, so really, if you think about social justice, justice typically means fairness, right? And you want to make sure that everybody has a, a, a fair shot at a decent life. And at least when I teach this stuff, I try to argue that even a four-year-old in the playground understands fairness, the very basic concept, mm -hmm. right? If I give, I've got a four-year-old and a five-year-old at home. If I give my five-year-old a piece of candy and I say, split this with your brother, right? And she takes three quarters and gives him a quarter of it, He's going to know that. He gets that that's not fair. If he sees the whole bar, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a good caveat. Yes. But so, so the idea is this is such a basic concept that you just, you, you, you understand it immediately, mm -hmm. whether or not things are fair, whether you get a fair shake. So the more, I mean, not that healthcare is necessarily completely fair. We all know that that's not the case, but there are some laws in place that promote fairness to some extent. Right. Interesting. Yeah, you, you know, fairness, when you think about, it's just in the microcosm of just the ER, there's a lot of other levels of fairness, I'm sure, to healthcare, right? No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, same regulation from there? How does it, so that one's, that one's more of a fine then? Um, legislated? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, um, and there are other things in place as well. So, like, it used to be the case, for instance, that physicians could get kickbacks off of prescriptions. So they would peddle these certain prescriptive drugs because they knew they were going to get kickbacks, get money for it. Uh, yeah. um, they, they don't allow that anymore. So, so they've, they've kind of stepped up their game with making sure that, for instance, Big Pharma, they still have a ton of power, mm -hmm. but they have kind of limited it more in recent years, I guess. Mm. Yeah, super interesting. Um, yeah, that was a great overview. Is you know, from a medical ethics perspective, before we shift to like applying some of these concepts, maybe more to the data science and 
AI AI realm. Like, mm-hmm. is there any other comments or any uh, any other thoughts that you have on there that we didn't touch on in, in this in the first part of the discussion? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing because I, I teach at a health sciences school, the biggest thing that I try to stress is ethics is more than that which is what's legally permissible, right? Mm-hmm. So ethics and law, although they're linked, ethics is a much broader sphere, right? So there might be some things outside the realm of, for instance, every, every profession in medicine has a code of ethics, but there are so many things outside of that code of ethics that is where the ethics really lies, like how you treat your patients with compassion, with empathy, all those things. Mm-hmm. You have those possibly in a code of ethics, but when it happens in actual context, right, this is something that it takes experience and it takes skill to, to do it well. Mm-hmm. From, a, from a health system perspective, um, you know, our, they're not all nonprofit, right? Like they're for-profit organizations. Correct. Yeah, we have both. And they've already implemented these type ethics programs then, obviously. Yeah, whether or not you're for-profit or non-profit, you'd have an ethics board. You'd have an ethics board. Definitely, yes. So it does exist in the for-profit world. Absolutely does, yes. Yep. Um, Any, do you have any real, uh, any opinion on like, is the same level of ethics applied in for-profit and non-profit healthcare? Or do you feel that it's already... Ethics has been pretty well established inside of the healthcare community that that is equal no matter what the way the organization is structured. I think it's been around so long, for instance, the AMA Code of Ethics, the American Medical Association Code of Ethics, it's been around so long that it doesn't really matter whether you go to a nonprofit or a for profit. You're gonna get you're gonna you're gonna get a similar experience, honestly. Now, it is true that you know the mo- the business model is gonna be different, right? If you're nonprofit, you get more of a tax break because all the money goes back into the entity, the, mm-hmm. the corporate entity. Whereas if you're for profit, you can you can actually make money, right? So it's a little bit different in that regard. But in regard to like what are the what are the ethics of care? It's gonna be the same. Gotcha. And then the application of the ethics of care is going to be the same either mm-hmm. way then mm-hmm. too. Exactly right. What what level of like ethical responsibility do individuals have at these organizations? You know, are there are there are there ever gray areas? I mean, maybe that's why you have a board, but um, you know, are there gray areas and gray areas? And if so, like how do you navigate them? Yeah, well, ethics is all gray, right? I love the gray. The black and white does not. It happens to some extent, like. Should you murder an innocent person? Of course not. So we have some black and white, but when ethics is interesting, it's gray, right? So essentially, for instance, let's talk about maybe somebody with a terminal diagnosis. Does the doctor tell the truth in that sphere? Now, for a long time, we had what's called professional privilege, where it was kind of the doctor's call, right? Mm-hmm. So they could they could basically, usually they would be they'd be kind of like they'd practice in the person's home, they'd have their family doctor essentially, right? And they would understand whether or not that person could handle that information, okay? Nowadays, we don't, we don't really appeal to professional privilege as much anymore. The idea is, if it's gray like that, it might be, well, let's think about, is this patient depressed already? Or is that patient in denial of their condition? Or like, can the patient handle the information? Those kind of conversations might come up, but you would definitely at least 
bring the family in and talk to somebody, right? And let mm-hmm. them know the truth of the matter. Mm-hmm. So there's still grayness there, but a, a very basic ethical principle like tell the truth needs to happen. Regardless of how it happens, it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, all of us, you can think about like you're maybe a surgeon. Sometimes they get a bad rap for being... They don't have as, as good of bedside manner sometimes. So sometimes you'll get that sort of perspective and they're just brutally honest, right? Um, I, nowadays we practice interpersonal communication in medical school so that it's not a matter of just like brute honesty. Like there's a certain delicacy to it and you have to approach it in a certain way. And I think that's really interesting, especially as you take that concept of the gray areas mm-hmm. and communicating the gray areas to someone requires um, probably conversation yeah. and context and transparency um, and then also consideration, right? Right. So, you know, shifting to today's um, challenges in ethics and in data science and in AI, yeah. you know, uh, I, I, I click accept terms on everything, right? Yeah. On the web. Most people right? do. Like, at, do you have any ideas or thoughts on how like that same ethics transformation or discussion can happen? Like how do you get, how do you transfer the same way that it's being handled in the medical industry Mm -hmm. to the digital industry? Well, I think the first thing, the first conversation that needs to happen from professionals in that sphere are what principles need to guide this conduct, right? So, in medical ethics, it's pretty basic, like autonomy is going to be incredibly important. I think that might be a principle that data analytics can also think through, right? So when you do click accept terms, right, and all of a sudden your Facebook account is linked in with all these other things or your LinkedIn account, whatever it might be. And you're getting shown content based right. on your data. Correct. Yep. Which we all know how this well, this happens, right? right. You right. clicked on this link. For instance, I was my, my wife is looking to go back for her master's degree, right? So I'm researching master's programs for her. And all of a sudden now I'm getting all these ads from these schools. Well, I have no interest in going back to school. Right? <laughs> You're done. <laughs> they, they, the, the algorithms don't know that, right? Right, right? So to some extent, the question is, do you have autonomy over who gets that information? And a lot of the times when you just blindly click, yeah, I'm fine with that. Or you text this number and then all these other people get access to your number. Um, the question is, shouldn't you have autonomy over who has that information? Especially if you think that all those clicks and whatnot are to some extent an extension of yourself and your interests, right? So obviously there's power in knowing what consumers want. You can then manipulate them to, towards buying your product, right? But I think the first question needs to be, what are the principles that need to guide this from an ethical perspective? I would venture to guess that the beginning point needs to be autonomy and probably non-maleficence, right? You don't want to, you want to, don't want to do harm to consumers, right? Because if they find out that you did them harm, even though it's all about profit, right? But even if they find out that you did them harm intentionally, that's not going to be good for business either, obviously. Maybe you sold them a more expensive product than, than they could, you know, they could have gotten the same product cheaper somewhere else. And there's a huge thing going on right now in medical ethics where you have doctors routinely ordering CT scans, which are more expensive than just your basic X-ray, right? Mm -hmm. When the X-ray would have been just fine to get what you needed to get, right? Mm -hmm. So those kind of conversations might have to happen in data analytics as well. Oh, that's super interesting. 
um, did not know that. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about so you, that so autonomy even in the medical field, like that only came around because of liabilities and because of legalities, right? Well, you had the the, the much of Western history was very paternalistic, and that word paternalism just means it's got like pater right in there, which mm-hmm. means like you're acting as a father does to a child, right? So that's kind of how you looked at doctors forever, where it was like, look, they took their oath, they promised they'd practice ethically, we're gonna trust them, we're gonna know that, just follow doctor's orders, mm-hmm. right? But it did take some litigation to change that mentality, and now we're to the point where autonomy is the norm, like that is the era that we're in, um, but you're right that it took it took some missteps to get mm-hmm. there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know as much about data analytics. Have there been missteps? You guys would know that a lot better than me. You're right. But it almost takes a breakdown like that to get to get this conversation going. Yeah, I think it, it, it's safe to say there has been missteps, you know, and I think that um, um, the ramifications of those missteps will have a fully come forward, right? Okay. You know, I don't think that, it, I think that, um, uh, people are doing the work to get you know the fact out that there are missteps inside and you know ethically and how we use data um, and obviously you see Europe going that way right like with right. GDPR and Correct. some of their AI um, uh, additional um, restrictions that they're considering to put on or maybe not or I'll call them considerations not restrictions yeah um, uh, but that's becoming codified right right so philosophers have been working on this stuff for a long time and then it takes a little bit before society says, oh, yeah, maybe we should. Ideas always happen first, right? You have the ideas first. And then eventually, if they're good ones, they turn into policies, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it takes a little bit for that to happen. The, the GDPR, if you look at that, it's strongly about autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. It's about you're not going to allow companies to manipulate consumer behavior, right? We want to respect the fact that people should have a say in regard to how their lives go. So that's heavily based on autonomy. Now, could there be an emphasis on social justice too, as maybe one of these pillars for um, data analytics in terms of ethics? I think that needs to be in the conversation, Mm -hmm. right? But the question is, what principles first need to guide things, and then everything else kind of falls from there? You know, the comment that you made about, you know, the autonomy and then like digital information being an extension of yourself really like i think that's really you know that's that's at the core of the whole gdpr thing right yeah is like that that is an extension of yourself and therefore you should be in control of it and and you know i think a lot of organizations especially when you consider you know small businesses where half of the united states is employed by small businesses yeah you know they don't have the resources and probably aren't considering um, autonomy of their of their analytics practices or the their AI tools that they're buying or you know those AI systems that they're buying and then utilizing. I don't think those conversations have happened yet. I do know among philosophers this is something that people are deeply concerned about, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, I don't have a smartphone, right? Because I understand that every single click that you have on a device like that is viewable by somebody and there's power in that information, mm-hmm. right? There's even somebody who, like me, who I really value critical thinking. Um, I teach it, right? You're still, we're not all like purely rational animals, right? We are run by instincts, by emotions, all these other things that make me who I am. And I wanna make sure that 
to, as, as far as an extent as I can, I want to have control over my life. But these conversations I don't think are happening on a broader scale, right? We've got philosophers who think for a living who are talking about it, but and, and maybe some other pockets of society, but I don't think this is a, converse, a normal conversation yet. Right, and you know, I do think that AI ethics, and that's kind of the reason that we're having this conversation, right? Um, ethical concept of ethical AI is definitely a, a, a topic, but you're right, it's not really being applied at the same level as that it is being discussed. Correct. And it is not even being discussed Probably in yeah. some sense, <laughs> where maybe it should be, yeah, where maybe it should be, right? Yeah. But ethics is one of those things. I always tell my students this: it's one of those things that's inherently important, right? It, people care about their lives deeply. That's what it means to be human, to some extent. At least that's what the, the person I focus in on, Heidegger, is a philosopher that I study. He says care is at the core of our being. That's what it's all about, right? And if humans care about their their existence. And all those clicks on a computer or a smartphone are extensions of themselves, right? Then if you're going to take it seriously, you're going to be thoughtful as to who gets that information. Hmm. Yeah. So we covered autonomy and that, and that um, you know, some sort of applying that to the data science realm and analytics realm. Same with do no harm, right? Like there's that, that's a very, you know, that's a very easy statement to make. You know, the beneficent statement is kind of interesting to do good, right? Yeah, yeah, that was and, tough. And especially in, you know, for-profit industry, how, you know, how, how do you see organizations or how, how would you suggest organizations uh, maybe defining or even, you know, understanding what that means to their consumers, you know, or to, the, to their products as they build them? That's, yeah, great question. So this is the most difficult one, even in medical ethics, right? So you want to do good. That should be your intention to do, do your patient good, right? And a lot of the times people, there's disagreement as to what that looks like, right? So one, one doctor's gonna say this, another doctor's gonna say that, but it's understood that at least in terms of your intention, you should be looking out for the best interest of your patient, right? So the question is, when you shift this outside of medicine and you're talking about consumer behavior, the bottom line is capitalism does not have a conscience, right? The bottom line is profit, right? But if you can kind of understand that ethical practice and looking out and trying not to manipulate your consumers might be good for business, right? That's where that tie-in typically happens. So one of the realms that, like I, I published a book in 2016 on environmental philosophy, the, the, the argument that I try to make is if you can show that going green is, is not only good for the environment, but good for business, right? You've got a better chance at getting people on board with that. So that idea of ethical conduct, as long as you can tie it into like what's, if it's good for the consumer, but also good for the company, it's a win-win sort of situation, right? That's, that, that gives it some teeth, I guess. Mm -hmm. If you're just gonna say, you know, try, try to be a good person, right? But it's, it's not in your best interest, in terms of business, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to, there's a balancing act there, I think. So I have a really interesting question then, specific to data data science. And I mean, at a, at like, let's look at a really uh, basic example. Yeah. You know, you think about a recommendation engine for a toy. For, okay. You know, I got a four, I got a four going on five month old and I bought him two toys off, off, off online. Got it. And now they're, um, 
uh, suggesting that I buy a third toy. Got it. So Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, or not Peace Prize, but Prize in Economics, he calls this nudging. Yeah. So this is nudging. So you're basically taking consumer behavior that's already in the past. Yep. And you're kind of putting something out there and dangling it in front of you. That's nudging, hoping that you jump. Right. So, so then, okay. So that is a, that is an algorithm behind that. That that, is a, that has said which which nudge or which toy to buy next. And nudge me which toy to buy next. Right. It, you know, I think that in these ethics that we lined out, and we're talking about beneficence. Like, is it good that I buy that next toy? Like, do I re- like? Does he need that toy? Does my kid need that toy? Is it? Is it, is it good for me, a consumer, to have that third toy? I just bought two. Right. You know, like, do you get down to that level of detail uh, in this type of, in, when you talk about ethics and data science and, you so know. So that's the thing. So power is tricky, right? And the, the freedom and power are linked. So the question is, are you freely choosing to buy that toy because that's what your son would like? Or is it the case that you're being manipulated and that company has power over you to such an extent that when you see it, you don't even think about like Netflix, right? They don't even give you the chance to think, here comes the next episode, right? So it's the same sort of thing. Like, are you, are you consciously reflecting on whether or not that is within the realm of what you'd like for your child? Most marketers know that that's not how humans work. (laughs) We're not, we're not rational animals. That's the most famous definition of human beings, but that's not how it actually works in context. There are a lot of things that, that change human behavior. So I guess the question is maybe, maybe it's nice because that is legitimately within the realm of what you'd like to purchase for your child. And they're just showing you, here you go. Right. Mm -hmm. But for, for some people, that's not necessarily what happens in their brain. It's more so like, like pleasure now, click. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So it, it really, it depends. You have to be diligent, I think, as a consumer. So but that's an interesting thing because we're talking about ethics and AI. Yeah. We're talking about a lot of the responsibility when you're building these algorithms have to, you know, exist with the, the constructor right, right. of those algorithms. Right. Um, and, and then we're saying here, well, it's not really, the, you know, it's not really up to the constructor here. It's up to the consumer to decide if, yeah. you know, if that's good or bad. And, and hasn't that, you know, is it, if you're just, if you're giving them freedom or giving them the choice, can you wash your hands of the ethics as a creator of these algorithms? I don't think so. Personally, I don't think so. And I think, for instance, what's happening in Europe is they're trying to say, no, like you can't, you can't just, you know, do it. It's basically in the U.S. right now with data analytics, it's the wild, wild west, right? Basically, you can get away with a lot of stuff mm-hmm. to the point of manipulation. Now, I personally think Europe's ahead of us in this sphere, right? So think about even like, I, I'm thinking this morning, my, my um, children like sugary cereal, right? And they get advertised these sorts of things on on you know, their devices that they watch. So that's what they want, right? So in Europe, you can't do that. You can't advertise with Matt, like, you know, well, think of any, any cereal you have, they have like a mascot, right? You can't have that sort of thing over there because they understand that children are not rational, right? Mm-hmm. Now, am I trying to say that adults are not rational? No, but it's definitely the case that your behavior is not always guided by rationality. 
So if you're allowing these AI structures, these algorithms to basically dangle this the, the stuff in front of consumers, right? Maybe when they're not at their best, it, it allows them to make decisions that they wouldn't have made otherwise. So we can't think of, we can't think of um, people necessarily as always doing things that are in their self-interest. So they're not always going to have the, they're not always going to have the freedom or the choice or um, maybe you can't guarantee that or can't count on them making the right choice. Well, what's really, what's really interesting is this term interpolation. And this is where you think you're doing what's best for yourself and you're doing things autonomous, autonomously out of yourself. But what's really happening is you've been manipulated to do things as somebody else wants you to do them. And that's the worry that I have basically where, and I've written a paper on this on pharmaceutical advertising, right? So pharmaceutical advertising says, look out for your health. Maybe you have these symptoms. You need this drug, right? right? right. So you're acting like, oh, I'm doing something great for my health here. I'm, right. I'm going to go get this. I'm going to go talk to my doctor, yeah. right? Yeah. But what's really happening is you've been interpolated. You've been manipulated by that advertisement to go pay for this drug, right? And you might not even need that drug. So that's the concern I think with, with AI as well. And maybe even, you know, the person who coded that didn't ever think about that. And usually there are way bigger consequences to this sort of thing than you think about initially, mm -hmm. but maybe somebody should be in charge of, you know, whether or not there's, there's an ethical mentality towards this sort of coding. I don't know. Well, it's, what's strange is we're, I mean, we're scratching the surface on the types of, you know, the, AI that's being used out there with a recommendation engine. Yeah. You know, like this yeah. is the most like, this is just the beginning oh, it of, is. of like, we could go into social justice, we could go into how algorithms be using, using sure. the justice system and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and we're talking about just we're very talking simply about, recommendation we're engine about exactly, kids' toys. Exactly. <laughs> and if you think about it more broadly, I'm, I'm sure many people listening to this have seen the social dilemma, right? Um, you click on something that like leads to a conspiracy theory sort of attitude and all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're, you're just bombarded with that sort of information, right? So you go down this rabbit hole, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where you can spend hours on the internet looking at stuff that you would have never chosen to do yourself, right? Right. So there's... You would have never searched for, you would have never probably even found. Correct. If it wasn't presented to you. So there's power in that, right? So George Orwell in his book, 1984, he says, it, there's a lot of power in taking people's minds and rearranging them so that they support your interest. And that's what, there's power in data analytics mm -hmm. that allows companies to do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So is it just up to the consumers to be vigilant? Maybe that's the way it is now, mm -hmm. but it probably makes more ethical sense at least to have somebody looking over this and making sure that people are not being manipulated. Mm -hmm. uh, super interesting. Thanks for that, that discussion. Um, you know, lastly, on the met from, you know, we're talking about the conversion from medical ethics to uh, data science and yeah. AI ethics was the social justice um, component. Yeah, of medical right. Ethics. Yep. Um, you know, when we talk about data science and the way that algorithms are being used in, um, in the justice system right now, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't even know what, you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, like, what are your thoughts on how, how that medical profession of social justice can then also be applied inside of 
data science and AI ethics um, to make sure that you know when we're when when we're creating things um, that, that that's in the back of our mind also. So a lot of the times when when I teach this, at least when I teach social justice for uh, people in in medicine, I talk about it from this perspective of. Um, Fairness, right? So it's, it's all about fairness. And the most famous social justice thinker in the past hundred years is a guy named John Rawls. And John Rawls argues that you need two things for a just setup, right? You need equal rights and equal opportunity. So for Rawls, the biggest question is, how do we make sure that maybe the rich Boston kid with Ivy League parents, right, has... The, a certain shot at a decent life with equal rights as the kid who's born in inner city slums of Detroit. So how do, with, with maybe not many role models around them, not much money, right? So how do we make sure both have a good shot, right? In medicine, with something like Mtala, which we talked about, right? At least you have a shot to, if you get sick, you have a place you can go, right? I don't really know the realm of data analytics like what is the appropriate comparison for that sort of thing but how do we make sure for instance if your algorithm is saying well i only want to focus in on this zip code because they have the money right maybe that particular product might be useful for somebody outside that realm is it fair for you to maybe geofence to that particular area if it's a product that could be helpful elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. It makes it makes total like profit-based sense to do something like that, mm -hmm. but is it fair? Mm -hmm. Right. Those are questions that are 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 interesting. I don't have answers to, but those are the kind of conversations you need to have. Well, that goes back to the beneficence too. Doing right, good. like if you can help others with your solution or your product, um, do you have a ethical responsibility? To then make sure that message reaches everybody equally through um, data science, rather than constricting the message, you know, that message getting out there through data science. And especially if you think about like a company's mission statement, this will give you a sense as to what supposedly they're all about, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can be thoughtful as to, well, how am I living my mission, right? Usually, there's some sort of talk towards equality and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, is your AI that maybe you've outsourced or whatever it is, but whatever it is you're using, are you really supporting equality through your measures of marketing or whatever that looks like? Those are questions that probably need to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, really interesting. Um, so uh, one of the last questions I have here. Uh, it, it's, it goes back to the concept of uh, medical board or ethics boards. Ethics boards, yeah. Do you feel that there is a place for that same thing to be applied inside of private um, or in public industry, for-profit industry, that and instead making it a data ethics board or, you know, mm -hmm. tell me your thoughts on that at all. So whenever you talk about things like business ethics, like, like that, mm -hmm. right? Usually you make a distinction between shareholders and stakeholders and shareholders. We know what that means. Mm -hmm. They've got stock in the company, but stakeholders are anybody who has an interest into how that company is run, right? Which would be consumers. It would be, and for instance, on ethics boards, a lot of the times you'll have a patient advisor in there, right? So, in data analytics, 
if you think this through, who is affected most by those, those corporate policies and practices? That needs to be the, uh, an initial question. Who are the stakeholders, right? Those are the people that need to be at the table in regard to navigating the gray when things get a little ethically tricky. Um, now, I, you know this better than me, like who would make sense for that sort of thing, but certainly that's where you'd start. Who are the, share, who are the stakeholders? And then let's get together and make sure there's not just one voice in that room, right? The more, the, the, the more sectors of society, the better. And that's why you have this in ethics boards. That is something I would have never thought about is actually having a customer sit on a data ethics board, Oh yeah, right? certainly, like, yes. Rather than... Otherwise, how are you gonna get that perspective? Right. Right. Maybe you can send out some surveys, but it's better to actually have a person in front of you. Yeah. So much to learn. I feel like they're like just like even that simple suggestion right there for medical ethics because it's been around for so long. Yeah. And taking a you know, patient on the ethics board. Well, hey, maybe a customer should be on the ethics board for you know, your data analytics solutions or how you use data inside of your organization. To right. Your right. Grow or in your product or what have you. Yeah. And it might be good for business, too, actually, because you might get a better sense other than what the algorithm's telling you. Like, what is the person telling you, right? right? You might get a better sense as to what they want. But you know, when you hear about customers being a part of uh, product, like uh, innovation products, sure. right? Like they, uh, customers, you know, they give good customers the uh, first, first crack at the product, right. take feedback, those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't th- I've never heard of, uh, my, I personally never heard, it probably does exist, is having a um, customer on, uh, on a data ethics board because that's a very good that ethics part portion of that is very different um than just you know your product creation absolutely right yeah and, and what's interesting is ethics is intuitive mm-hmm. it's not like you need a phd in philosophy to understand these terms mm-hmm. right and anybody is interested in it it's just that's how it works right so it's not you don't need a certain expertise to know what's right right well, the PhD definitely helped and it helped today for sure. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, any, you know, this is all such a great topic. We covered a lot of things. Um, before we wrap, is there anything that, you know, that you'd want to touch on or you want to talk about um, regarding ethics inside of the data science and AI analytics world before we, before we break? Well, I just, I think through um, some of the conversations I've had in philosophy settings of, People who are, are, as I said earlier, deeply concerned about this sort of thing. So, for instance, the top Heidegger scholar in the country, he'll, he only writes on a typewriter, an old school typewriter, because he's concerned some of these thoughts are pretty dangerous, right? He's concerned that it's going to lead to some negative sorts of things, right? Um, a lot of my friends don't have smartphones. So, so these, are, these are things that I think need to be taken more seriously than the average consumer takes them. Um, but the biggest starting point is just to get this conversation going in the first place and trying to think through what you actually want out of data, right? And what, w- how can we use data in a way that's not manipulative? Mm-hmm. That's the biggest question. Um, right now, we're just not quite there in this country, but those conversations need to start happening. Yeah, they absolutely do. And I think they are. Um, you know, I think everybody's kind of on the edge of their seat for it to happen sooner and faster. So. I agree. Yeah. Um, well, all right, Casey, almost forgot to ask you the most important question. It's something we ask all um, our attendees here and all our guests. Um, if data science and AI 
was a superhero, what would it be and why? That's a good question. I think, I think the answer's got to be Batman. Because Batman is kind of like this, this dark figure who's vigilant in the night, ensuring that things go the way they're supposed to go, right? But they're kind of in the, he's kind of in the background. So that's kind of the figure that I think of, where when you're building these algorithms and whatnot, like, let's make sure, even though you're maybe in the background, you're not in people's, like, sight, what you do matters, and you want to do things for the good. That's great. Appreciate that, yeah. <laughs> As I think the first person that said Batman, so I really like that. There we go. Yeah, we'll go like with Batman. It. That's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Casey Remmeister, thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. Um, appreciate your time, and... Uh, um, hopefully I have you back. Maybe we'll have you back here again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks hopefully, a there's a, hopefully there's a part two. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Analytics Anecdotes podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from Exilian Partners, you can subscribe to our podcast with your favorite podcast application, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, or reach out to us directly at www.excellion.io. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.